How many of you like rules? <laughs> you have any rule followers here? How many of you like rules when you're the ones that get to make them versus when you're the ones that have to obey them? It's a different story, right? As a teenager, I was predisposed to hate rules. That's because I wasn't in charge of making any of them. The rules felt unfair and arbitrary, even oppressive to my teenager perspective. And there were no available means for me to change these rules. I didn't even get a single vote. That's how it felt as a teenager. And I'm talking about both in school and at home. Any teenagers out there still feel like this or, or not? Is that, is that past? Here's an example from school. Uh, I recently came across something I wrote in eighth grade for an English assignment. I shared this with the youth group a couple weeks ago. 13-year-old Brandon writes this. He says, if there was a suggestion box at school, I would visit it often. My first suggestion would be to make the passing periods five minutes instead of four minutes. That's because there's not enough time to get to my locker and to my next class without being late. Sounds fair enough, right? Interestingly, my niece, who's now a 13-year-old, informed me that the passing periods are now five minutes. So you see, I was right. So, <laughs> Here's another example, and this pertains to rules at home. See if this sounds familiar. 13-year-old Brandon writes, If there was a suggestion box at home, I would have a few things to put in there. First, I don't think my bedtime should be the same on the weekends as it is on the weekdays. Why can't I stay up an hour or two later on the weekends since I don't have to go to school in the morning? Right? Am I right? The standard reply, however, was simply, because I said so. End of story. Why are there so many rules? I wondered as a teenager, and I threw up my hands in frustration. Perhaps you've asked that question, too. Why are there so many rules? Maybe it's not just about rules at school or home or at work. Maybe it's also about the rules in the Bible. Dear God, why in the world did you give us so many rules to follow? You can't possibly expect us to obey them all, can you? Our scripture passage today is about rules. The ten most famous rules of all time, one could argue, and while they're the, they are the big ten, uh, there are many, many rules to come after them. And, and so the question, some questions that, that come to us are these. What, what do we make of all these rules as Christians? What's the purpose of them all? Do they reflect a God who is overly demanding and controlling? Is God a tyrant rolling out laws with the attitude, obey me, and why? Because I said so. Isn't God just being nitpicky with some of these rules, this, this, this arbitrary code of ethics? Or, if that's not the case, if there's something else going on, if this really is the word of the Lord, then what is the meaning of all these rules? These are the questions we face today as we consider the Ten Commandments. Before we read them, let us pray using the words of the Psalms. Teach us your way, O Lord, and lead us on a level path. Teach us, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then we will keep them to the end. 
Give us understanding, and we will keep your law and obey it with all our hearts. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading begins with Exodus 19, which sets the stage for the commandments. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Stephanie preach on the Exodus. This, these events happened three months after the Exodus, three months into the journey of freedom. What this means is that the highs, the high experience, the highs of the Exodus have worn off. Perhaps you know by experience that starting power is different than staying power. The energy necessary to start something is quite different than the energy, energy necessary to sustain it, especially when the going gets tough. And the going is tough for God's people now, three months into the journey. They're in the wilderness. This is unsettled territory, and they've already struggled with not having enough food and water. You know how you get when you're hungry, right? (laughs) With this in mind, hear now the word of the Lord from the book that we love. On the third new moon, After the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. Let's stop there for now and chew on this section of God's word. In this section, this section that sets the context for the Ten Commandments, we discover the relationship between the lawgiver and the recipients. And this is so important. The one making the rules for Israel is none other than the God who rescued Israel. They were in a dark, dark place, living in a state of constant terror and oppression. This grieved the heart of God, who came down to rescue them, who brought them out on eagles' wings, and so they soared on high, to the brand new countryside of salvation. It's only after this rescue that God gives them the law. This is the case for us as well, if we belong to Christ. The one who calls us to trust and obey is none other than Jesus, whose love overcame death for our sake, so that we might live in freedom God first rescues us in Christ before giving us anything to do or not to do. This is important because if we don't understand this, we will come to resent 
God. It will all seem so unattainable and unfair. God will seem like some distant dictator, spitting out legal jargon for us to follow, and we'll resent God for it. That's what will happen if we interpret the rules apart from the relationship. If we divorce the lawgiver from the Savior. Or there's a second possibility if we do this. Possibility number two is that we'll become legalistic Christians. If we focus on the rules apart from the relationship, what will follow is that we'll try our best at keeping all the rules. And when we exceed, we'll feel good about ourselves and probably be terribly judgmental of others. And when we fail, we'll discover that the worst judgments always come from ourselves. My friends, you don't want that. Trust me. So what we must understand is this. The God of the law is none other than the God of our salvation. That's the character of God That's what Exodus 19 and 20 show us. They go together. As I said, God's act of rescue comes before God's list of rules. First, God earns the right to be heard by proving himself trustworthy. Only after God has won our freedom does God show us how to walk in freedom. As commentator Alan Cole writes, it is because of God's redemptive work that God has the right to command. I think you get the point. So listen to verse 4 again. You have seen, God says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is the line that precedes the law. In other words, you have seen how I have rescued you in the actual course of events in your actual life. Now, therefore, obey my voice, keep my covenant. Applying this to our own experience, we might hear God saying to us, You have seen, people of Heartland, you have seen what I did to all those things that made your life miserable. The constant fear, the vibrating anxiety, the unhealthy relationships, the painful divorce, the illness, the grief, the unemployment, the addiction. You have seen what I did with all these things. You were in a dark, dark place, were you not? And this grieved my heart. So I have come down to rescue you, and I have brought you out of that on eagle's wings. Yes, you still experience troubles, but did you not see how I was with you through it? How I brought you closer to myself even in the midst of it. Did you not feel the wind against your face, crisp and cool, as I carried you on eagle's wings? You soared on the heights when I picked you up out of that dark valley, when I carried you and led you to a new kind of life, a life lived in the daily presence of God. Now, therefore, (laughs) this being the case, trust and obey. Now, therefore, keep the covenant. Now, therefore, be for me a priestly kingdom. Represent my character to the rest of the world, and it will go well for you. Friends, are you beginning to see how the law is good news? (laughs) 
Even all these rules, they are good news. Friends, the rules are intended to unveil to us the good life. They show us the only life worth living in the presence of God. They reveal to us life in the kingdom of God. As one commentator, read, one commentator writes, The law is good, a gracious divine gift, and it's given for the sake of a well-ordered community. Without it, we're left to manage life on our own terms. And it doesn't take long before our lives soon become unmanageable if left to ourselves. To put it differently, God's salvation brings us to the land of freedom. God's law helps us stay free. Lord knows how we're prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. Lord knows how easily we slink back into slavery. We see it in the Exodus story as well. They want to go back to Egypt when the going gets tough. So the ways of keeping our freedom that God has won for us, these ways are not self-evident. God has to show us. Therefore, with the same divine heart of love, God not only rescues us, but shows us how to live. So here are the top 10 ways to live, according to Exodus 20. These 10 commandments form the core values that inform all the rest of the commands in the Old Testament. As one commentary reads, these values from the ten, they promote and protect the life and well-being of the community. They are the means by which we walk in the freedom that Christ has won for us. That's what the Ten Commandments are. Let me add just one more bit before we read them. To our own modern ears, these commands are going to sound strict and stern, and they are to some degree but we must remember the original audience. These are ex-slaves to whom God is speaking to. This means they have been schooled in the oppressive ways of Egypt for generations. So God needs to put things in as clear of terms as possible. Let's be honest, often we need the same treatment, whether we like it or not. So hear the word of the Lord from the book that we love, Exodus 20. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a zealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the immigrant in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. 
Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the beginning of the good life. The beginning of life in the kingdom of God is with following these commands. And these ten commands, God unveils to us who, before these commands, don't know how to live. God unveils to us the God-intended life for you and me, even for our society at large. What would happen if every person on the planet ordered their life according to these commands? Can you imagine? (laughs) Our prisons would turn into playgrounds. Unfortunately, we can't control other people. That's one of the functions of the law, to curb evil, to protect us from evil. But fortunately, we can control how we order our own lives as individuals and as part of communities. So, my friends, let us let these laws structure our lives, our families, our churches, our, our workplaces. If we do this, we will experience with increasing measure, I believe, the life that God intends for us, a life of peace and joy and thankfulness and love. That's the life God desires for us. But first, God wants to lift you up on eagle's wings, (laughs) if God hasn't already. If God hasn't already, first God wants to lift you up and bring you out of everything that's making your life miserable. God wants to carry you by his grace and bring you to himself. That is, God wants to usher you into a life of interactive relationship with Jesus. Once you find yourself in this expansive countryside of salvation, God wants to show you how to live there. And that's, that's the purpose of the Ten Commandments. How do we live in the freedom that Christ has won for us? So I want to complete this sermon by considering how just three of these commands show us how to live life in the kingdom of God. I'd love to do all ten, but we don't have time for that. So we'll tackle three of the first four. God wants to show us how to to live in God's kingdom through these. I hope that these three will at least give you the imagination necessary for working through the rest yourself. So we start with commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. We could translate it literally, you shall put no other gods in my face. (laughs) That's what the before me literally means. Behind this command is God's desire for a personal, exclusive, face-to-face relationship with you. God doesn't want to be one among many lovers. God wants to be your primary love your only love, through which all other loves find their meaning. After all, God has made you his primary object of affection, his primary love. Now, when this reciprocal relationship 
of divine human love finds expression in your life, you are not only keeping commandment number one, but you are also walking in the kingdom of God. And this is life as God intends. You shall have no other gods before me. The second command is related to the first. You shall not make for yourself an idol. The backstory on this command is Genesis 1 and 2. You remember that story, right? The opening of the Bible. God has created all things, what? Good. With the kids, we've been doing this daily Bible story time. That's one of the first lessons. We sing this song, that's good, right, Andy? And it just goes, that's good, that's good. It is very, 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 very good. God created all things good. Very, 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 very good. Their goodness is intended to make us thank God. God's intent for us in all of this creation is to enjoy God, even as we enjoy God's gifts. As reformer John Calvin writes in the 16th century, there is not one blade of grass, there is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. You guys are so colorful today. Makes me happy. However, it's possible, in fact, very possible, likely, that we desire only the gifts and ignore the giver. This is what leads to our self-made idols. Therefore, the same John Calvin writes, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We, we pump out idols all the time if we're not careful. These idols bring us comfort in the short term. That's why we're attracted to them. But in the long run, they will ruin our lives. While they offer a shortcut to happiness, we who belong to Christ don't need them in our lives anymore. As Pastor Craig Barnes writes, we do not need to buy something else, get another promotion, fall in love with someone else, or accumulate more money. Those things are not bad in themselves, but they become deadly to our souls when we start to believe that they can save us. That's when they become idols. And the best that any idol can do is to help us cope with slavery. But the mysterious liberator, our good and gracious God, leads us with a vision of how good life can be, that's why God graciously commands, number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Finally, we'll skip to commandment number four. We could spend a whole sermon series on this one. Maybe we will next summer. This is the longest command in the list. Did you notice that? Now here's the, here's the short version. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Richard Foster, author of the Celebration of the Disciplines, he says this in the preface of the 40th anniversary edition. He writes, the curse of our age is distraction. He goes on to explain that God won't force himself into our attention. God is very patient, and God will wait. What this means, though, 
is that the more distracted we are and the busier we are, the less thought we give to God as we go about our day. But that is entirely contrary to life in the kingdom, a life lived in constant awareness of God's magnificent and benevolent presence. The antidote to our distraction and busyness is Sabbath-keeping, reserving a regular block of time to remember that you are a human being, not a human doing. That's Steph's line. She loves that line. (laughs) Sorry, I stole that one. A regular block of time to remember that you are a human being, not a human doing. You are more than your work, more than your accomplishments, more than your contributions to the project. You do not earn your identity as God's beloved. Christ has earned it for you. So rest, my friends. Rest in the grace of Christ today. And give rest to your workers and your kids, too, that we may all take a break, breathe a little bit, notice God's presence all around us, and live in Christ's kingdom of peace. Now, in the spirit of rest, we're going to stop right there. I pray that's enough at least to give you the imagination to see God's commands as instructions on how to live the good life that God intended for you. Now, before I stop talking, though, I want to leave you with a challenge. You should know that I hesitate doing this, because whenever I challenge you, God makes me do it, too. But But I I think this is at least one faithful response to God's word today. So here's the challenge for you and for me this week. It's, uh, it's, did you get an insert in your bulletin, I hope? Last minute insert. Thanks to Gwen White and others for putting that in there. The challenge for us this week is to do a moral inventory of our lives based on the Ten Commandments. Do a moral inventory of your life based on the Ten. With, with unflinching honesty and courage, consider how your own life measures up with each command. Just have a conversation with God about it. This is actually an ancient spiritual exercise. The early church called it self-examination, and it's, it's sorely needed in today's church, I believe. Now, we have to be careful here. The goal of self-examination is not to see how great you are or how, how terrible you are. That would lead you down that bad road of legalism once more. Rather, the goal is to get honest before God and remember this is the God who loves you and wants the very best for you. So this is an exercise to start a conversation with God who desires to conform you to the image of Christ for the sake of the world's blessing. So I want to make this as practical and doable as possible which is why I've included that, that bulletin insert. La- allow me just to, to offer this brief outline that's described there. First step in this uh, practice of self-examination. You may want to begin with the words of Psalm 139. Examine me, God. Look at my heart. Put me to the test. 
Know my anxious thoughts. Look to see if there is any idolatrous way in me. Then lead me on the eternal path. Second, I'd suggest reading each command slowly, allowing God to examine every little corner of your soul. You may need some further explanation on what's at the heart of each command. I've given some explanation on three of them. Maybe you need some on the rest. To this end, I'd I'd highly recommend the Heidelberg Catechism, 450-year-old time-tested commentary on Scripture. It's got commentary on the Ten Commandments, and they provide more depth on what each command is all about, incorporating Jesus' teachings on the matter as well. They're really still fantastic. You can Google, Google it if you can't find it. Third, after you say this prayer of examination and you uh, read along slowly these, these lines, these uh, commands, third, if you're, like, if you're anything like me, you'll have something to confess. Perhaps you'll have lots of things to confess. Confess them and get specific, as specific as possible. Of course, God already knows, but you need to know that God knows and that God still loves you in spite of it. That's the gift of confession. So we pray, Lord, forgive me for X, Y, and Z. Fourth, we pray. Fourth, we pray for God's power. This is crucial. Pray for God's power. After we've been examined, after we've looked at the commands, after we've confessed, we pray for God's power. Lord, enable me to do what I cannot do in my own strength. This is the grace of spiritual growth. We don't make it happen, friends. God does. We simply put ourselves in a position for God to work. We put ourselves in a posture for God to renovate our hearts. We pray prayers like this, We do things like come to church, partake of the sacraments, listen to Christian music perhaps, and with faith the size of a mustard seed, we let God do the heavy lifting in our spiritual growth. And finally, we end with a prayer of gratitude. Father, thank you for showing me the way life is meant to be lived with you and with my neighbor Thank you, Jesus, for the freedom that you have won for me in your death and resurrection. Help me, Holy Spirit, continue to walk in the expansive countryside of salvation. Amen.